Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. everybody. Happy brand new era day and welcome to the news agenda with me Fleet Street Fox and today I'm joined by the Mirror's online political editor Dan Bloom. Good morning Daniel. Good morning. Now this is the People's Paper Review so get into the comments, ask us your questions, we'll do our best to answer them for you. Those of you listening later on podcast you'll just have to try again with the same old losers. So what have we got for you today? Well, the mirror has splashed on Rishi Sunak's new era in Downing Street as he declares a new period of honesty and integrity in politics and then appoints Gavin Williamson to his cabinet. Now, our Gav was fired as Defence Secretary only a couple of short years ago for allegedly leaking secrets in the National Security Council. Nothing too bad then. Also in there is Suella Braverman, who resigned only last week for using the wrong email to send government secrets to people. And Dominic Raab, Dominic Raab, who not only doesn't know what Dover is for, but spent the fall of Kabul on holiday when he was foreign secretary, completely kiboshing the evacuation of everyone who needed rescuing from the Taliban. But at least the beach was shut. So there's that. Now, Dan, is he trying to unite all sides of his party by bringing them all together in one big tent? Or, or is this a result of the fact that he literally has no one decent to choose from? I think the second one is slightly subjective, but uh, he's certainly <laughs> trying. He's certainly trying to pull together sort of disparate voices in his party. The fact that he's got people like Grant Shapps on one side and Suella Braverman in, on the other side in the same cabinet is is indicative of that. The problem here is that, as you say. Because he's used a lot of reruns, a lot of familiar faces, a lot of these people have a very checkered history. Um, and even if they haven't kind of resigned over some kind of scandal, they might be very controversial in some way. You know, even aside from if you take completely aside the security breach of Suella Braverman, and by the way, there's an incredible quote in the Times from one of her allies this morning saying, uh, it wasn't a big deal because everyone's at it, everyone's always doing it, which is always the worst defense you can ever employ to anything. Yes. Um, there's the issue of she sat there at Tory conference and she said, it is my dream, my obsession to see a front page of the Telegraph with a flight taking off to Rwanda, uh, which is kind of had a dub the, you know, uh, cheap version of Martin Luther King, basically, you know, I have a dream today. It is yeah. deporting yeah. a load of asylum seekers to Rwanda. Uh, and then when she backed Rishi Sunak, she said, now is not the time for nativist thinking you know kind of putting the picture so what does she believe i suspect she believes the former and there is a lot of talk from the opposition denied by james cleverly in the government that there was some kind of deal to put her back in the home secretary job so she could get the job done so there are more examples of this in the cabinet if you let me wax on for a minute that there are people on the other side of the argument who for example mel stride the new dwp secretary 
has warned against cutting benefits. You've got the Development Secretary, Andrew Mitchell, who has warned against cutting foreign aid and sort of campaigned against it. So you're going to have, when this um, financial statement comes along, which we'll talk about in a sec, uh, some very big cabinet arguments. And that is the price you pay for not just stuffing your cabinet with loyalists. So it's all great now, but it could unwind in the next few weeks. Yes, well, it could. I think it's probably highly likely. Now, Neville says, someone made an error. I think, Neville, you may have not spotted the deliberate pun or play on words, which uh, the mirror has gone with. Uh, you haven't seen it, so, you know, fair enough. But that is a headline in the paper. That is in our cell for this video this morning. It's it's a joke, Neville. Um, and uh, we didn't pronounce it error. We, we pronounced it error. So that was the clue. Um, now, keep getting into the questions. Ask us your comments. We love a bit of a dad joke. So if you have any interesting puns, throw them at us. Um, now, elsewhere, education has got its fifth secretary of state in a year. Uh, and yesterday it was reported that I think it was the Department of Culture and the Cabinet Office, junior ministers, I think, had so many changes of personnel in the past year, they could each field their own, or well, past few years, they could each field their own 11 aside squads. It's been that bad. Now, while that happens, okay, the civil servants who run all those departments have to keep preparing briefs for everything for, for a new minister that comes in. They have to stop all their work or put it in a holding pattern. They can't push anything through and they keep preparing a new brief. And then they have to junk it straight away because their minister's just gone and they have to do it all again. And that means there's been no actual governing going on during this entire period of turbulence because civil servants cannot put anything through without a ministerial sign-off. And if they keep changing or the prime minister's out again, then everything just goes into a holding pan. The question is, Dan, I suppose, firstly, is that going to start freeing up the backlog now and things are getting done? Does This does seem to have settled the markets a bit in the past couple of days. But will that hold when we get a new budget that's going to be filled with cuts? Will it settle the country? Well, a new budget filled with cuts will certainly settle the markets because the reason the markets kicked off is because of this issue of having 70 billion of tax cuts that wasn't funded uh, and was just funded by borrowing. However, those very same cuts in a budget could very much unsettle the country. You've got an avalanche of people already this morning. The County Councils Network, which is led by a Tory council leader. Uh, you've got the Joseph Rowntree Foundation on, on benefits and those kind of issues. Uh, just warning, do not cut the services that our most reliable uh, our most vulnerable people rely on that have been cut to the bone over a decade of austerity before sort of Boris Johnson came along. And then now, as inflation is soaring and their sort of cash terms budgets are not going up with inflation, uh, they now face sort of a real terms cut already. Uh, so that is the huge concern. And it's probably one of the reasons why there are reports that they're going to put back the Monday date. Uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, his chancellor, who he's kept on, are having those discussions today. And there is a chance that they will be um, pushing back the Monday date of this fiscal plan because Jeremy Hunt was going around with cabinet minister to cabinet minister, getting them to draw up cuts uh, at the end of last week. Of course, what happened at the end of last week? Liz Truss resigned and it uh, fomented a, a lightning quick Tory leadership contest. So we don't know if it'll be delayed by a few days. There's a suggestion in, in one outlet that actually it's going to be delayed in order to turn it into a full budget rather than a sort of medium-term fiscal plan, which yeah. I mean, in the real but world the really knows what the, that means. 
part of the reason I thought was that they were having it on October the 31st was that on November the 3rd, the Bank of England is supposed to be setting interest rates. So if they, you know, if they, if the whole point was to settle things a bit before that, so the interest rates aren't so bad, if they delay it until after that point, then interest rates are going to be just as bad as they were going to be because there's nothing else to, to change that, those interest rates, is there? That's a good point. Um, I think one issue, though, is that the Bank of England and the markets kind of do also operate on when there's a clear signal of the sort of thing that's going to happen even without the details. And one reason why Kwasi Kwarteng brought it forward is because he was, to put it kindly, a very chaotic chancellor. He was saying there's more to come, there's more to come on these unfunded tax cuts uh, and not spelling out what it was. And that was what drove the market into a frenzy. Uh, the signal from Jeremy Hunt and from Rishi Sunak is we're going to be making difficult decisions, we're going to be cutting spending, we're going to be balancing the books. Whether that's true or not, we only find out later on, but it at least gives the bank a little bit of reassurance that means it might not be quite so bad. The other thing, of course, is that everyone's mortgage rates that have gone up to 5 or 6%, um, as far as I know, that prices in the expectation that the bank is going to raise interest rates further so it's almost sort of baked into the system now um even if as you say it might kind of affect exactly how much those interest rates go up yeah well we have to on... have to see how that pans out i suppose yeah. now, drew says braverman was sacked for breaking the ministerial code how does that work out she resigned actually drew and i suppose uh, from rishi's point of view uh, she was honest about it she alerted the cabinet secretary um, and so, therefore, integrity and honesty in politics is restored. There was also some suggestion because of who she had sent that email to. It was once the person who had led her leadership campaigns, John Hayes, a uh, friend of this parish, who, um, and it was suggested that it was done as sort of a technicality, almost as a way of engineering her departure from the cabinet because there were other rows that she had with Liz Truss and she wanted to go and position herself away from Liz, if you like. So, it's it's not quite the security breach we may all think it is, perhaps. Tina says, here comes very high taxes and more people are going to struggle. You're quite right, Tina. Um, and outside the Westminster bubble, the cost of pasta has doubled, according to the ONS. Put some new figures out in the cost of living yesterday. Milk is up 30%. And both tea bags and the number of food bank meals distributed by the Trussell Trust have both gone up by almost uh, half. So almost 46%. Uh, now, Rishi's got to tackle inflation like this and bring bring that down, Dan. But he can't cut those prices, can he? Because that's stuff, as you said, it's already baked in. Those are prices that were caused by increased electricity costs and product, production costs months ago, um, thanks to the war in Ukraine. If inflation comes down, those prices are probably going to stay exactly as they are. Interest rates are going to stay as they are. Mortgage payments are going to stay as they are. People really will suffer even if Rishi Sunak wins on this one point, aren't they? Yes. Uh, the, the new reality created created over the last kind of year or two uh, with the war in Ukraine, with the kind of uh, pressures that COVID built, and then was sort of baked in and accelerated by all that stuff that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng did to the markets. That is there, and you can't just undo that stuff Yes, sometimes prices can come down or what have you. I'm not an expert on like grain trading numbers and that kind of thing. But in general, 
you don't tend to have a sort of deflation where everything in the market in the same time comes down and the forces that are causing all that stuff is still there you know the ukraine war where ukraine uh, produces such a large quantity of uh, the, the world's grain and stuff so these are really big problems they're here to stay and the problem now is that problem for people even if it's good for the markets is that we've got a government coming in saying we're going to deal with this by cutting spending by balancing the books etc which is moving towards the rhetoric we had during sort of 2010 2011 um mm. cameron osborne or sarah t so what's missing this time is the sort of like self-flagellation we have an, we as a nation have been naughty and borrowing beyond our means what's and, missing is they know. can't blame it on labor it, this exactly. is this is them exactly they're making um, their own mistakes aren't they so there isn't the same sort of vindictiveness if you want to call it that to that but it's the same kind of pressures and what's going to be interesting is that Labour have adopted a policy of we will not announce anything that isn't fully costed we are responsible with the economy so now that you have Tories who are you know the previous Tory regime a week ago was being by any account incredibly irresponsible with the economy you've now got a group that will come in and essentially try to outflank Labour and challenge Labour to say, why are you not supporting all our cuts? And that is exactly what happened in 2010, 2011. And it put Labour in a very difficult position because Labour didn't want to be seen to be irresponsible with the economy. And therefore, um, there were kind of all these cuts happening that uh, kind of Labour was sometimes equivocating over, etc. And some of them they were obviously yeah. vehemently opposing. So it may it's well, be a difficult time. It may well play into Keir Starmer's hands a bit as well. If Rishi Sunak does all the difficult cutting for mm. six months, maybe even 18 months, and then by the time Keir gets into power, which at the moment seems so nailed on, he could spend the rest of his time sunning himself on a beach, um, that you know the difficult stuff has been done and he can just pick up the pieces. We'll have to see, won't we? Now, Wendy says, just get big companies and global companies to pay decent living wages so people spend here again. I think we taxpayers are a bit fed up with topping up wages when those companies are prioritising shareholders over people making money for them. We might as well donate a portion of our money to shareholders directly. It's absurd. We're being stitched up by our own government. It's so wrong. There's a huge number of people on very low wages, as Wendy says. The government is having to top it up with in-work benefits because we're not paying enough. Partly that's because we were reliant on a migrant workforce for so long, weren't we, that we, we paid them very poorly. Now we don't have those migrants. We're not doing economically as well, but we're having to pay people more. But we still don't want to pay them as much as perhaps they would expect. And we still want to pay them migrant level wages. And there's just this huge disconnect between what we pay and what we need people to do and what we're prepared to do. And I think that kind of structural fixing of the economy, that would take a decade, wouldn't it? How on earth can Rishi do that between now and 2025? Well, take as an example, the old fiscal rules, which you hear so much about, that's essentially that debt should be falling. Uh, at a certain point, because at the moment we are still mounting up the national debt. We're building it bigger because we're still borrowing more than we spend, uh, more than we raise. Um, the original target was to get to that point where we're reducing the national debt in 2015. <laughs> now the target is kind of 2026 and is probably going to be pushed back. So it's, it's just extraordinary. Like a decade is right and we keep not doing it because we keep being hit by political turmoil, by global turmoil, financial turmoil, mm. and there's no sign of 
you know, the political turmoil has calmed down for now, but there's no sign of it stopping generally. In no, Germany, is there? And I've, uh, I've, I've just, uh, you know, the, the fact that, um, that, as Mike says there, there's actually, are there actually any new faces in cabinet? How will a, a picture of today's cabinet look any different from the last two years, apart from the appearance of Gavin Williamson, who's minister without a clue? Um, he's actually minister without portfolio, which um, probably means that he's going to be running about uh, sorting out party unity. And as Steve says here, we have Johnny Mercer back as Veterans Affairs Minister, which is good news for nuclear test veterans. Now, um, as regular viewers of this show know, I write about them. Johnny Mercer has supported them both in and out of government, perhaps more so when out of government, it's got to be said, um, because bound by certain things he's allowed to say when you're in government. Um, and uh, there are more than two million veterans in this country who need better treatment from their government, including those nuclear vets. Um, but the Office of Veterans Affairs has got a budget of the smallest one in Whitehall, I think. It's about five million. And there's going to be a massive round of cuts coming in. It's there's going to every department is going to have to take a huge crunch, aren't they, Dan? Um, it's just I don't I can't see how they're going to get done the things they want to get done, the things Johnny wants to do for veterans in general are going to be difficult enough, never mind what they need to do to cut the, the waiting list at the NHS, for example. Uh, yeah, and I think that segues into a story we're going, we were going to talk about in the NHS of some awful waits, but we'll get that in a second. I mean, the plan was that every department, including health, including defence, was going to have to talk about cuts. And now that you've got some people in the cabinet who are very, very vocally on record against cuts in their own department, uh, Andrew Mitchell um, in uh, foreign aid, uh, Johnny Mercer is obviously incredibly outspoken, as you've said. Uh, ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, has um, said he's against uh, any sort of watering down of this target to get to 3% of GDP spent on defence by the end of this decade. James Heapy, one of his ministers, has even said he'll resign over it if, if that happens. Uh, and then other people in kind of to a lesser degree. Um, he's going to have a real fight on his hands to get these through. And yet there's a 30, 40 billion pound black hole in the public finances, partly caused by kind of inflation going up and leaving kind of the money is in their pockets is worth less than it was before. And partly because of the stuff that Liz Truss did and kind of some of the tax stuff that mm. did get through before the U-turn. So it's a really, really, really difficult time. And Jeremy yeah. Hunt had said that no department was exempt, even exactly. the NHS. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, ministers in there who have threatened to resign over things like not increasing benefits in line with inflation. Um, so he's got, to, he's got to find a way to square that circle. I'm not sure he's going to be able to, especially as Rishi, remember, let's remember, he's a man who doesn't know how to use a debit card. All right, he may know how to play with billions, but he doesn't know how to fill up someone else's Kia with petrol. Um, now, to other more urgent matters, which we've already referenced on pages 2021 in the mirror, uh, is reporting that on Monday last week, two patients at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge had to wait for a hospital bed for more than 60 hours. A sixth of all their A&E admissions, more than 15%, were there waiting more than 12 hours. Now, Dan, not long ago, we were reporting 12 hours as a horrifying and unusual wait for anybody to get to a hospital bed, but it's becoming the norm now in a lot of places. There's 7 million people nearly on the waiting list. If Rishi cuts the NHS, there isn't anything for him to cut, is there? There's no fat left to trim. What he'll be doing at that point is closing things, isn't it? That's certainly what industry people have said, not just in the NHS, but in councils, that sort of thing. 
Uh, and I mean, I'm looking uh, above this screen at a chart of um, the A&E waiting time target. So if you remember, it was that 95% of people who go to NE should be seen within four hours. Um, and I'm looking at a red line, which is just going down and down and down and down and down uh, in time. So it, it started as the target of 95% seen in four hours or less kind of being met. By the time you're in 2014-15, it dropped to about 90%. Just before COVID, it had dropped to about 70% of people. So 30% of people before COVID and then during COVID um, the number of people being seen on time shot up very briefly because fewer people were going to A&E people were scared to go to hospital etc etc but afterwards it's absolutely plummeted and now two in every five people are not being seen at A&E in less than four hours they're waiting longer than four hours so um, the 60 hour wait is extraordinary and it's I think it's a case of two people so what the NHS could say is, oh, this is, you know, this is a dreadful one-off. We're so sorry. But it's the problem is that it's not a one-off. It's a mm -hmm. systemic problem. And campaigners and some NHS people are saying essentially that it's caused by a lack of funding and a lack of planning and turmoil in kind of structure of the NHS. And that's been going on for years and years. So yeah. it's not like you can just go into the one hospital trust. I forgot which one it was in front of me that had these 60-hour waits and say, sorry, you're on special measures, um, no more 60-hour waits, please, because it's a wider problem. Yes, exactly. And I think the only way to resolve it is something like a national care service, which uh, was supposed to be being supported to some extent by Rishi Sunak's 1.25% increase in national insurance, which got binned. Maybe it's coming back. Who knows? That was raising about 20 billion, wasn't it? Some 30 billion, something like that was going to help the NHS out. But bringing that in is very much another tax hike. And who knows how anyone's going to react to that? Uh, it's it's um, uh, it's a word I can't use, but it ends in show uh, financially and economically what we're looking at. Um, and we've seemed to have appointed a government of all the talent list to to take us through it. Uh, it's worth pointing out as well, I should have said earlier on, but uh, Therese Coffey, who only last week was accused of manhandling someone through the voting lobbies in order to vote for fracking, is now the Environment Secretary. <laughs> who knows how that works? Uh, but we do have plenty of things, I think, to be optimistic about. So we found some good news for you today. We're going to run that in a minute. But first off, if you've got any questions, if you've got any concerns, if you've got any experiences the NHS you want to share, uh, what do you think Rishi Sunak should be cutting? What do you think uh, he shouldn't be cutting? Get into the comments. Let us know. And we'll have a wrap up at the end. But first off, here is some good news to try and perk you all up. Here it is. <laughs> Now, there's only one possible bit of good news today, which is the Pride of Britain Awards that were run last night. It's run by The Mirror and ITV, and it is on your telescreens this evening. Here is a quick glimpse of what you can expect. Every year we celebrate the courageous individuals who go above and beyond for their nation. And we're back once again, laying out the red carpet for our very special guest. It's my favourite night of the year. It's going to be incredible. Real stories, real superheroes. Join Carol and I as we celebrate all of the goodness in our nation's heart. Hello! It doesn't matter what you look like, it just matters that you're kind on the inside. The Daily Mirror Pride of Britain Awards 2022, Thursday at 8 on ITV and ITV Hub. 
Now, normally the Prime Minister attends the Pride of Britain Awards, but we, we literally didn't have one for a while yesterday. Uh, so it was a bit unclear what was going to happen. And then, of course, he had a government to build uh, yesterday evening. So I don't think Rishi attended. Um, but what is there instead is a huge range of people, uh, of inspiring stories that will give you hope uh, about this country's future and humanity in general, I think. And not least, the story that's uh, featured in the paper today, that of Alex Anderson. And he was born with Asperger's syndrome and he was denied his dream job in the RAF. They knocked him back. He was incredibly depressed about it. But he joined a Prince's Trust employability programme. They gave him uh, some of the skills and the will to reapply. And you guessed it, he's now in uniform. He's serving his country. And he got personal thanks from King Charles himself last night, which is truly well deserved. And there's so many other great stories in there as well. Dan, I suppose this just shows, doesn't it, as Pride of Britain always does, that, you know, if you if you reach for the sky like Alex did, there's always people who will push you on. Uh, yeah, I think the great thing about Pride of Britain, which we've supported for many years as the Mirror, is that it kind of makes you stop and pause from all the political turmoil. I think it was on Monday night, by the way, so uh, Liz Truss could have had her final hurrah going to the Pride of Britain Awards, but she was probably a bit busy. Um, it's today's Wednesday, it's, it kind of... I, don't, I don't even know what day it is. And Pride of Britain's actually on tomorrow uh, night at 8pm, not tonight, because <laughs> I, I think it's Tuesday. Uh, but anyway, I, I mean, yeah, it makes you stop from all the political turmoil and remember kind of what matters and the honours uh, that we get twice a year are to a much lesser extent kind of the same thing and I say a lesser extent because you also get a load of kind of political cronies and people like that rewarded so um, uh, it's just a chance to stop and look at what people are doing that doesn't always make a headline because it's not a gear shifting country ruining or making kind of change it is just that incremental stuff that makes society a better place to live so I'm, uh, I'm pitching here for my invite to the Pride of Britain Awards. <laughs> Someone said to me in the office the other day, why don't you come? I said, I'm NFI, darling, NFI. It's a very um, exclusive list. Yeah. It's a very exclusive list. <laughs> we don't get people like us in the same room as Holly Willa Bubbly. Now, Brian says, uh, they were fined for Partygate. He was condemned over his wife's non-dom status, and apparently it's all forgotten. Um, this is one of the things that Labour has already started attacking Rishi Sunak on, isn't it? Because when his wife's non-dom status came out, he very much gave the impression that he said this is just a result of her having dual nationality as, you know, almost that like there's nothing she could do about it. But it's something you have to apply for. You pay £30,000 a year for the privilege of not paying tax. And Labour have said they're going to abolish it. What are the chances that Keir Starmer is going to stand up with a gag about... Um, non-dom status today seeing as he's now a jokester maybe i <laughs> if i was place if i was placing a bet i would say that he would avoid the non-dom stuff simply because rishi sunak can turn it back and say why are you slagging off my wife which is kind of how he did it before now that the criticism was totally legitimate it's basically the difference between Having being a non-dom, which is a kind of statement of fact, and having non-dom tax status, which is something you have to pay for and reduces uh, what tax you pay on earnings that co are coming in from outside the UK. So uh, I would say that Keir Starmer might mine the, the rich seam of other uh, Rishi Sunak kind of scandals or problems and that kind of thing. Yeah, Maybe he'll mention uh, his wife, but, you know, 
who I knows? Think maybe Starmer the... hates his his wife being mentioned and his kids being mentioned. So yeah. um, might well stick here with that one. But uh, there's going to be perhaps something about the retreads that are in the cabinet. Uh, more retreads than in QuickFit, all the rest of it. And uh, yeah. although I don't think QuickFit really does retreads, um, and uh, perhaps the cuts that are going to be coming in, and the fact that he's not making a budget statement, uh, as we perhaps think, as Dan reported today, uh, is going to leave it and delay it for a bit, which means those interest rates are going to be what they were going to be. Um, and we'll have to see, of course, if Liz Truss and Boris Johnson actually turn up to PMQs. We do know Boris is back in the country at least. So he's got no excuse this time, even though he had no excuse to be on holiday either. Yeah, Boris uh, Boris has not um, spoken in a debate or voted, as far as I, could, as far as I remember, uh, since... Uh, since he since the summer, apart from the Queen, yeah, um, the Queen. I speech. might be wrong about speaking to debates. He's certainly not voted, so um, he earns eighty four thousand pounds a year. Chicken feed, <laughs> chicken feed. <laughs> He's also uh, been very quiet on the topic of nuclear test veterans. So not a friend of this parish at the moment. But we shall see, won't we, how things pan out in the next couple of weeks. Um, right, Dan, thank you for taking us through all that. I don't think we've got any more questions to come, so that's the one we've wrapped on. Uh, join us all again next Monday, everybody, for another edition of the News Agenda. And if you're listening on podcast, 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 listening on the podcast, please uh, leave us a review so other people can find us. We'll see you all again next Monday for whatever Rishi has done by that point. Tati bye, everyone. <laughs>